You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Are you afraid to take a shower behind a translucent curtain? Unable to escape the image of a crazed killer with a butcher's knife? Or perhaps you worry about the mysterious plain van slowly patrolling your neighborhood, looking for what exactly? Many of us only know psychopathy through fiction and pop culture, and the history of psychopathic killers is quite real. The good news is that most psychopaths are not killers. The bad news is that psychopathy is probably more malevolent and prevalent than you would imagine. The Psychopath Test, next on Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Karen Stolzno, we talk about monsters, myths, and science fact. Today's topic is one that we will be visiting again. Our guest is John Ronson, whose book, The Psychopath Test, just came out in paperback. It's a fun read about a very unfun topic. Psychopaths are, in some respects, quite like pod people from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They look like you and me. They act like you and me, but inside, they can be quite alien. Of course, most psychopaths are not serial killers or child molesters, but they quite simply don't have the same emotional underpinnings as most humans, and therefore, no internal punishment system to prevent bad behavior. They feel no remorse, they feel no guilt, and some of them even doubt such feelings exist in everyone else, having never experienced such things themselves. This episode of Monster Talk will not protect you from psychopaths. It won't tell you how to avoid being manipulated by them or deceived. But it does give you an overview of both psychopathy and a bit of info on Ronson's book, which of course goes into much more detail. The psychopath test isn't just a story about identifying such people. It's also a story about the abuse that can happen when people believe that they have a foolproof method for such identification. For you see, there's no cure for psychopathy. And once you're so labeled... It could be nearly impossible to get rid of that label if it's been misapplied. Monster Talk. Okay, today we're going to talk to John Ronson about his... uh, This is your most recent book, right? 
Uh, yes. Okay, so this is the psychopath test. It's now coming out in paperback. But you're also uh, – people. our listeners may know you from The Men Who Stare at Goats or Them or any number of uh, really cool British documentaries. So that's nice. But how did, how did you come to write about psychopaths? Gosh, I'll tell you what it was. It was a, it was, um, I met a woman who, was, who married a guy internet dating. Um, and he was, he was a very gallant man. He, he, uh, he would always walk on the um, roadside of the pavement, for instance, which I didn't even realize was a, was a gallant thing to do. That's how ungallant I am. Mm. Um, and, you know, he was very suave. And, and she married him. Um, and he told me that he worked for the CIA. So he'd go off for months on end uh, to Janine, your Palestine. Uh, and she'd get these uh, texts from the CIA, like protected texts, saying he's okay, he's fine, he's, he's been injured, but he's fine. And this went on for about eight years. And then she discovered that he wasn't in the CIA at all. He was a fraudster and a bigamist. And... Mm-hmm. When he was in Janine, he was actually at his other family's house just down the road. So um, uh, two things came from the story that just stayed with me. Uh, One was I said to Mary, so do you feel hurt by it all? And she said, well, no, because does the wildebeest feel hurt when it's being chased by the lion? No, the wildebeest knows it's not personal and he's a psychopath and it's not personal. Uh, so I thought that was an extraordinary thing to say about a human being. Uh, and also, um, I spoke to a psychologist named Martha Stout, who said that the condition that this guy suffers from is the condition that effectively rules the world, that psychopathy is so powerful, uh, it's remolded society or wrong. And that reminded me of David Icke, who I wrote about in my book, Them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and David Icke said that giant blood-drinking paedophile, child-sacrificing lizard secretly ruled the world. And, of course, nobody paid David Icke much heed. Uh, yeah, everyone was paying Martha Stout heed. She's a Harvard psychologist, and it was basically the same theory. Uh, this, this race of you know, people that aren't quite human uh, are secretly ruling the world. So, so these were just big questions, and, and, I, and, and they were the questions that led me to write the book. I think it's funny you said he suffers from psychopathy, but isn't – yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, psychopathy is is the most pleasant feeling of all the mental disorders. Uh, there's no suffering at all uh, because the amygdala, which is the thing that you know basically provides a lot of us suffering, uh, guilt and remorse and anxiety, underperforms in in people who who are called psychopaths. And and um, so you're absolutely right. Zero suffering. John, what makes someone a psychopath, and is it a clinical term as well? Right now in the DSM, the term is APD, antisocial personality disorder. Uh, The word psychopath really belongs to a man named Robert Hare, uh, who um, invented the the checklist, the Hare PCLR checklist, which is like the gold standard for diagnosing the condition. Um, And his, but, you know, when you look at, definitions of sociopathy or psychopathy or APD, it's, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. So it is a clinical thing, but unfortunately, it's it's very hard to spot in people. But, you know, it's malevolent and it's hard to spot. And so Hare came up with this 20-point checklist of sort of nuances of 
behavior that if you're qualified in the checklist, you can learn to spot them. You can learn to root them out even when they're pretending to be normal by their linguistics, their turns of phrase and so on, which you know, struck me again as a, as a sort of huge thought. Isn't that open to terrible abuse? So I decided to become a psychopath spotter and indeed immediately started abusing my power. <laughs> as, as, as one might expect you would have, you know, with the, achieving this newfound power. I was curious about um, when, you know, in, in your book, obviously in your new book, you're exploring psychopaths, although in your previous books, uh, you know, uh, particularly them, I, I think, um, you've obviously spoken with, you talked about David uh, before uh, and others as well. Um, I'm wondering whether uh in light of your new research and your new book, if there are people that you interviewed previously for your other books or for your articles or anything else that you are now either more or less concerned about uh, having more having more experience and insight into psychopaths, you're, you know, maybe people who you said, well, actually, they seem to be fine or really, oh, my God, I'm surprised she didn't rip my eyes out and eat them. Right. Well, um, I, I, I certainly have one or two suspects in mind from previous books. There's, there's one person I can think of in, in The Many Stoic Goats. Uh, everybody else in The Many Stoic Goats, I, I think, no way uh, are they in any way psychopathic. Uh, in them, you know what? I know it sounds sort of funny because the, them is populated with you know, white separatists and white supremacists and hardcore conspiracy theorists and Alex Jones and and... In them, I, I can't really think of anyone uh, who would strike me, obviously, as a psychopath. Okay. Um, oh, we can talk about that some, some more, if you like. Um, I, I can think of a There's somebody who I interviewed one time, and I don't want to name him because uh, he would probably sue me, and he's such a bastard, he'd probably pursue <laughs> me to the ends of the earth. Uh, so and he's I'm not a psychopath. Well, yeah, uh, and so consequently would just take enormous pleasure from from doing it. Uh, so I won't name him, but I can certainly think of one person who I've encountered over the years um, who I, I, there's no question in my mind is, is psychopathic. And and, uh, uh, there's, and there's another person I've just thought of who I would suspect, but I feel bad about sort of just <laughs> labelling, like, like some kind of, you know, gun for hire, like just labelling people. Um, with such a huge, with such a huge phrase. I mean, for for a while, I sort of wondered. No, I can't say. I mean, I'd love to say, but I just feel like I can't. You know, for that's own... okay. <laughs> well, this is what I will say. That the and and some people may disagree with with what I'm about to say. But if you're an ideologue, if you believe in something bigger than yourself, um, doesn't that mean that you're not psychopathic? Because if because psychopathy is a very very selfish thing. It's all about it's all about boosting yourself in society at, at the cost of everybody else. So if, you, if you're a genuine ideologue, if you're Omar Bakri Muhammad or, or David Icke or uh, you know, people who, who seem to really, really believe what they, what they say, that sort of negates the idea that they're psychopathic, I think. As I say, some people might disagree with that, but that feels logical to me. They're delusional instead or, or something else. Not even to oh yes 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 absolutely with David Icke it's very hard to to work him out um, very hard. Well, it, it seems like it would be tricky though to distinguish between uh, someone who's a true ideologue and someone who's using that sort of ideology to fulfill their own. 
personal power goals. Like I, I, certain religious leaders come to mind where they, it turns out that, you know, they're actually quite selfish or, or doing things against their religious creeds behind the scenes while espousing certain values. Uh, Most certainly that that's the giveaway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, because, you know, one of the items on the checklist is cunning, manipulative. Uh, another item is um, callous lack of empathy and all, all these things that would say, yeah, you would use religion as a, as a way of kind of cloaking your true intentions. Gotcha. So, so can you just tell us a little bit? I mean, I would like people to actually read the book, but what is the psychopath test itself? What does that actually entail doing? So it's this 20-point checklist, which I learned over three days in a marquee in West Wales uh, with Robert Hare, who's the, who's the king of psychopath spotting. And, and as I say, uh, unlike a lot of disorders, the, the, um, the, the diagnosee isn't usually invited to take part in their own diagnosis, because if they're psychopaths, it means they'll manipulate, they'll manipulate the test. Um, so they're diagnosed from afar more often than not. And it's basically through studying the way they respond to certain questions. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you one example from my book. I, I went to meet uh, a man named Toto Constant, who was a Haitian death squad leader. Uh, I met him in prison in upstate New York, where he's serving 12 to 37 years for mortgage fraud. So not only was he a death squad leader, he was also a mortgage fraudster, which is item 20 on the checklist, criminal versatility. Uh, so I went to see him. And he kept saying to me, you know, I just want people to like me. It's, it's really important that people like me. And after a while, I said to him, um, isn't that a weakness? Just you know, desperately wanting someone to like you. And he said, no, it's not a weakness. And I'll tell you why. If you can get people to like you, you can manipulate them to do whatever you want them to do. So <laughs> straight out of the checklist. Um, and, it, and it proves. I came away from this um, with no doubt in my mind that, that, that the hair checklist is, is accurate, but I have huge doubts about the way that it's used in, in society. So if uh, APD is a clinical disorder, is there some kind of treatment for this? No treatment. This is a kind of nihilistic story. Um, well, I say no treatment, but I'm going to caveat that in a sec. The, the, the majority of, of um, people who work with people with APD or psychopathy or whatever you want to call it will say no you know they they only they only stop being malevolent when they just get too old and lazy to get up off the sofa so it's a kind of dark story um so for instance uh, I was in Stockholm last week and I, I met somebody who works with psychopaths and he said um re-offenders who aren't psychopathic tend to stop around the age of 50 but Reoffenders who are psychopathic tend to just carry on until they literally can't crawl out the door. Um, saying that, there's other people who, who, who will say that there's some evidence that cognitive behavioural therapy can work if you can convince the person that it's in their own best interests to change. Um, and there are units that you know in Britain and America that, that try that out. Um, also, since my book came out, obviously I've had you know, huge amounts of, of correspondence with everybody from psychopaths to people who believe that their wife or husband or boss or father is a psychopath, uh, to people who believe it almost certainly wrongly. Um, 
And I've had a couple of emails from people who say, I am a psychopath. I've been diagnosed as a psychopath. It's no question. I'm definitely a psychopath. And I'm sick of it. Uh, I'm sick of just leaving a kind of trail of malevolence in my wake. And I want to change. I, I want to use my psychopathy for good. And one of them said, I want to use it to become a better church missionary. And another one said, I want to use it uh, to become a better salesman. And, and you know, what? Well, on both of those occasions, I, I believe them. And I'm just wondering, where do you draw the line between mental illness and some kind of ethical or moral position that they have or lack thereof? Yeah, well, it's not a mental illness. It's, it's um, you know, mental illness is defined pretty much when you have, you know, hallucinations or delusions or, or you know, things that can be helped with, with medication. And um, psychopathy is, is probably better described as a, as a, as a moral deficiency. Because there's no empathy, because that part of the brain underperforms, um, there's no real morality. It's just a sort of, you know, a, 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 a sort of field of, of, of dead crops where empathy and remorse and guilt should be. Yeah, it's a t- I mean, this is everything I'm saying here is kind of difficult for me to say because it goes against all my liberal um, sensibilities, you know, because I'm, I'm raised to believe and basically do believe that everyone's basically the same. You know, everyone's basically just like me. <laughs> so, yeah, empathetic and wanting to do good and wanting to be a good person. But, yeah, the evidence is that, you know, there's one in a hundred of us who actually aren't just like us. They're, 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 completely different but you can see that everything that i'm saying is open to like real abuse because if you start thinking of these people as like not quite human uh you know, imagine the things you can justify yourself doing to them mm-hmm. yeah i was um i actually it's interesting in a couple places in your book and also in your earlier book then i found what seemed to be some some slightly surprising statements for example you said that uh I quote, he says, uh, I'd always believed society to be a fundamentally rational thing. And I'm wondering, is this true or is this just a journalistic conceit? I mean, did you... No, I did. You really really did believe that society was fundamentally rational? Yeah, (laughs) I'm sorry. I I don't mean that in an insulting way. I'm just kind of surprised. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I I guess. I mean, obviously, I I know there's an awful lot of irrational people in the world. And and I know that... um, uh, you know, irrationality quite often drives me. It's a more powerful engine in my life than rationality. But, you know, what popped into my head when you when you asked me that was my father, you know, saying to me, I remember like 1979 if, or 1978, if Margaret Thatcher gets into power, I'll take us all out for dinner. You know, my, my father was a was a was a conservative small businessman who believed mm-hmm. that that our leaders, our political leaders were rational beings and and i guess i came you know i came up with a similar you know i, I was influenced by that and i, I don't believe it anymore but uh, but mm-hmm. i i did believe it and you certainly hadn't been uh, through the uh, the the uh, the experience of george w bush otherwise that would be crystal clear that that certainly yeah. our, our rational is uh, not quite the same yeah, un- unquestionably, and and um, but I always kind of saw that stuff, you know, as as the exception that proves the rule. Although, of course, I don't live in a country that's, um, you know, how many people believe in God in America? Isn't that sort of like eighty or percent or ninety percent or something? Something uh, like that. Yeah. So obviously, I don't come from a country like that. So it's probably <laughs> easy to. Uh, Fair point. Yeah. 
<laughs> and next on uh, philosophy talk, <laughs> I mean, I do, I do understand. Like, you know, I mean, to say it's a, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but the, the, there is the whole thing about Thomas Hobbes and the social contract, and even in the most dysfunctional societies, you'd have to suspect that there is some rational basis for allowing a government to exist which protects the people. It's just that the flavors of protection can range from, you know, uh, some sort of almost anarchy to fascism. I don't, you know, so, yeah. yeah sure, absolutely. And it's, uh, and, um, yeah, and just the sort of idea that, you know, people rise up the ladder on the basis of merit. I mean, as I say, obviously now I'm in my 40s and I, I, I can see the world much more for what it is now. But, um, you know, growing up in a, in a sort of suburban house in Wales, I just kind of believed that. I just believed that, uh, you know, that, ra- that you, the further you go up the ladder, the more rational. And we were the crazy ones going around <laughs> down below. I mean, obviously, that's clearly not true, but it's certainly what I believed. Let's, let's get back onto psychopathy and more specifically uh, the role of psychopaths in monster lore. Um, well, let me ask you this way. Uh, did, did, uh, did doing this research uh, change your opinion on the image of psychopathy in popular culture? Yeah, well, well, Hare said to me almost almost at the very beginning, he said, you know, there are there are no accurate portrayals of psychopaths in the movies, uh, and then he caveated that by saying that actually there is one, and when he told me who it was, I thought, oh, you know, you're absolutely right, and it's um, it's the sissy space set character in Badlands, Holly, you know, the way that she. If anybody listening to this hasn't seen Badlands, you've got to go and see it anyway because it's you know one of the, one of the greatest movies ever. Um, but it's, it's, there's what she really displays is one of the items on the checklist, which is shallow affect and inability to experience a range of emotions, and so you ape other people's emotions. Total constant. The Haitian desk squad leader at one point pretended to cry in front of me. And it was just obviously pretending to cry. It wasn't real. And in Badlands, Holly, Holly's entire voiceover is like um, cliched statements that she had read in some movie magazines. And so that's a kind of beautifully drawn portrayal of somebody who has this condition. Uh, but yeah, certainly people like Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, that's, that's much too kind of Baroque to be true. They're not that. They're, their charisma is 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 superficial that's another really interesting thing about them is that they're they're not massively charismatic they're they're ostensibly charismatic and the more time you spend with them the more you realize that the charisma is like a sort of it's like a front it's like a it's like a it's like a sort of film as a you know like as opposed to being any more than skin deep and is that uh, an easy thing for us to identify, or is there any way for lay people to be able to see that in others? Um, yeah, but of course, you know, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and I've had so many. I mean, I, I see my book, I see the Sackbart test as a, as a cautionary tale where I sort of take people into the world of the power crazed psychopath spotter and then take them out again by pointing out that actually it's, you know, it's, it's difficult and morally dangerous. You know, being a psychopath spotter can turn you a little bit psychopathic. So, um, so obviously it's, it's, it's a really dangerous hobby yet. Yeah. I, I think you can spot certain things, you know, the weird thing about human nature is that when our brains go wrong, they go wrong in uncannily similar ways. Classic example of that is, is OCD where, you know, it's basically the same, rituals all over the world 
Um, and I think psychopathy is another example of that, that it's obviously it's the opposite. I mean, I think literally psychopathy is the opposite to OCD because OCD is an anxiety disorder and psychopathy is an absence of anxiety disorder, you could say. Um, but but it, weirdly, it's kind of similar that, that um, they use similar turns of phrase, they behave in similar ways um, and you can find ways to, 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 you know, you can notice it if you know how to. I'm wondering about whether psychopathy seems to be a sort of a long or short term thing. Um, obviously, it can be both. But, uh, you know, typically when when I think of, of psychopaths and like maybe when the, when the public does, it tends to be in, in the sort of this glorified Baroque context of, you know, you know, we think of serial killers, or whatever else. But in the case of serial, serial killers, Serial killers are, by definition, successful because they have been successful in eluding capture in order to kill, you know, several people in case, in some cases, you know, a dozen or more. And so, by definition, if you're a serial killer, you've gotten away with it a certain number of times. But if you're a psychopath, um, you may or may not have been, you know, fooling people and, and basically leaving a leaving a, a trail of <laughs> of, of yeah. victims uh, for for you know months or years or decades. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think um, um, one great tool that they have is the fact that they they sort of use our liberal sensibilities that we just don't believe that other people aren't quite like us. And so they tend to get away with an awful lot of stuff because we just can't imagine that people have 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 motives that are completely different to ours, I think, on a a sort of everyday office type basis. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you've got the problem that that capitalism at its at its most remorseless tends to reward psychopathic behavior uh so we tend to make them our our leaders so we're sort of dazzled by them and and uh so we we make them our leaders um am i answering the question right here yeah yeah i was just curious in terms of again the 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 the, the notion that, you know, for example, you might just encounter someone who is just sort of a temporary psychopath uh, who, yeah. who, 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 isn't, who isn't, you know, a hardcore at their, at their at, you know, on oh, a yes, fundamental yes, level yes. psychopath, but they, they do exhibit psychopathic tendencies now and then versus somebody who, uh, you know, for 30 or 40 years in, in the example you gave as we opened up, who manipulated someone into believing that, you know, this, they had this, you know, this double life of a, a CIA operative. Sure, sure. Well, clinically speaking, that there, there, there really isn't such thing as a temporary psychopath. It's it's you just you are one from from the age of ten to to the day you die. Uh, which right. again sounds incredibly nihilistic, but and the reason why I say the age of ten is because you know one of the items on the checklist is is early behavior problems, which is you know extreme bad behavior that starts around the age of ten. You can see you know when you start bringing kids and and children's behavior into it again it becomes open to like incredible abuse because kids go through all sorts of stuff as as we all know um however um it tends to always start around the age of 10 um so there's no such thing as a temporary psychopath but there's every such thing as a psychopath who who can go through life without ever hurting somebody physically certainly physically mm-hmm. um you know m- almost every psychopath doesn't become a, a serial killer it's, it's a tiny tiny minority um, sure. 
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So, but Hare would say um, they are always malevolent. There's no such thing as like a positive psychopath, you know. They'll always be a cheating husband or a terrible boss, you know, and so on. Uh, so so th- they can probably go through quite a long time without committing, you know, without doing that much harm. But Hare would say they will always do harm and they'll do it forever. Again, you can see why this stuff is kind of dangerous sounding because, you know, this is a this is a monster podcast and there's a terrible danger in thinking of, a, of other human beings as monsters. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's, it's, for me, this is a very kind of contradictory thing because I, I agree with the checklist, yet I'm, I, I, you know, I find it's a really morally, you know, difficult area. So you, you just touched briefly on the idea that a psychopath might be able to rise high in business. And, and here in America, and I don't know how this plays out in the UK, there's this big movement to treat corporations as a kind of entity almost like a human being have you given any thought to how corporations themselves not just the people who run them but if you treated them as hypothetical humans how how might corporations fare on the psychopath test because i'm wondering like what percentage of powerful corporations if not run by psychopaths might literally be psychopaths yeah, well, I've got to say, it's it's hard to not look at, I mean, this gets into sort of polemical territory, which I'm always slightly suspicious of, but um, but it is hard to see certain industries as not, you know, as, as, as not being like um, a sort of physical manifestation of psychopathy. Uh, for instance, you know, journalism at its worst can be that. It's all about manipulating people for, your, for profit um, at, at its worst. Um, you know, the phone hacking scandal that's going on in Britain at the moment and so on. Uh, the subprime banking business, when they were deliberately seeking out vulnerable people to ensnare with loans that would keep them enslaved for the rest of their lives. Uh, the American healthcare industry strikes me as a really problematic industry. Uh, so, so 
Yeah, you know, it wasn't it Mitt Romney who said corporations are people, my friend. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the answer, yeah, it's like they are. They can be real bastards. Um, they can, at times, they can be psychopathic. So, John, did you talk to many psychopathic killers in your research? Um, no, I, I, I went to, I mean, there was Toto, the Haitian death squad leader, and there was a man called Tony, who I write about a lot in the book, who, who beat somebody almost to death, but didn't actually, didn't actually kill him, uh, thankfully. Um, so, so the answer to that is kind of, is, is sort of. So they don't normally have tendencies to kill? No, I mean, Tony's problem uh, was, and he's one of the main characters in the book, was uh, he's not predatory like a, like a lot of psychopaths are. This is where you get into the kind of nuances, by the way, of the checklist, because one of the items on the checklist is cunning manipulative, and another another item on the checklist is impulsivity. And critics of the hair checklist will say, well, how can you have those two in one checklist? And what Tony was, was impulsive and with poor behavioral controls. But he would, but he would never and has never stalked somebody. You know, he's never kind of plotted, coldly plotted. He's much more kind of impulsive. He's a kind of bar fight type guy as opposed to a cold plotter. I have to say, one of the uh, one of the particularly interesting examples from your book is a woman named Rachel North. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about her. Sure. I mean, this is this gets to a part of the book which isn't really about psychopathy. It's more about the use of 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 madness in journalism. Um, but it's such, I, a, I, such, it was such yeah. a fascinating story. You have to tell us about. Yeah. It. Oh, it's an incredible story. She she was a um, well, she is a friend of mine, and she was on one of the trains on July seventh, um, which blew up. Um, she was in the same carriage as one of the bombers, and. Um, but she was she was okay, uh, and she became a spokesperson for the for the July seventh survivors. Uh, they were pushing for a public inquiry, and they were meeting in pubs as kind of support group. And she became a spokesperson. And one day she was googling herself, and um, she discovered that there was a whole bunch of people talking about how she didn't exist and was in fact a team of MI five officers who were tasked with spreading disinformation about the truth of July 7th, which was that it was not an inside job. This is a different, it's a, it's a different theory, that it was an, a, um, an accidental power surge had knocked out the London underground. And to cover it up, the Blair government had blamed Islamic militants, uh, which has to say does, does seem like, a, like using a sledgehammer to crack and... No, no one died on the bus. Uh, it, was, it was fake. It was actors and stuntmen on the bus. Mm-hmm. So Rachel emailed them and said, um, well, I, I do exist. And it's not nice you know, to be told you don't exist when you've just been blown up on the tube, which they took as, as more evidence that she didn't exist. Uh, mm-hmm. And the more, the more she tried to convince them she existed, the more they were convinced that she didn't. Uh, and there were like discussions going on about her, like um, "I bet it ain't real." Um, somebody said about her, "I bet it ain't real." I first heard about Rachel because uh, some nine eleven. I accidentally typed my name into Google and inadvertently pressed <laughs> search one day and discovered a nine eleven truth site that said John Ronson is um, is is just another Rachel North. 
So I thought, I wonder who Rachel North is, and that's how I found out about her. And um, yes, we became friends, and she ended up confronting, she ended up going to a meeting uh, where they were all going to be discussing, you know, the truth behind July 7th, and she stood up and confronted, angrily confronted them all, and got into a huge fight with them. And, and the, um, the ringleader of the truthers is a guy called David Shaler, uh, who was an MI5 officer, um, who became a kind of hero to people, you know, to the kind of anti-government left because he um, um, leaked some secrets and had to go on the run, and um, yeah, and he kind of cropped up again as a as as the head of the July Seventh Truther movement. It's an incredible mm-hmm. story. I, I just I just thought it was a fascinating part, story, partly because of the whole the whole conspiracy element, um, and just the you know because the, the, the show is is ostensibly about monsters, although we bring in a lot of other skepticism and conspiracy and stuff. And I just thought it was such a great example of how you can have someone stand up in front of people saying, "I'm the person you're claiming doesn't exist," and they're <laughs> like, "I doubt that." <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. The fact that you tell me you exist is is more evidence that you don't exist. Is that exactly? I, I kind of lost my sense of humor a bit about it after, you know, I, I'm always, I've always felt very glad that I wrote them um, before 9-11 because them is a, is a sort of funny, in some ways quite sweet natured book about conspiracy theorists. And, you know, when the truth movement started, it all, you know, it turned conspiracy theorists into a much nastier, you know, there was, there was much less room for being kind of humanist about them, I thought. I enjoyed the book, but it's a, such a dark topic, so it was nice that there was a little humor mixed in. But yeah. uh, it is a it's, it is a depressing topic. <laughs> I mean, Rachel got was getting um, she was getting death threats, and her father, who was a country vicar, uh, was getting you know weird letters through the door saying you know your daughter is a tool of you know the Zionist government and etc. Cetera, et cetera. So they became you know this was a woman who nearly died you know. I, terrible so it seems like a psychopathy like like a lot of psychology represents a spectrum of behaviors and uh, so in the statistics about how prevalent uh, psychopathy is uh it doesn't seem to break out between uh the physically dangerous psychopath and the uh, manipulative but maybe not going to stab you uh psychopath is there really a distinction there or or is every psychopath dangerous well, I would say every psychopath, yeah, is dangerous because they are always malevolent. They will always cause you trouble. But more often than not, it will be, you know, just nasty as opposed to violent. Uh, so they'll, you know, they'll screw with your head. They'll they'll manipulate you just for their own, either for their own pleasure or for their own personal gain. Uh, but they won't beat you up i mean you know it's it's quite often a venn diagram you know there's probably an awful lot of pedophiles out there who who will never do anything about it because they would feel too much guilt and shame and remorse and those are the things that kind of keep us on an even keel um it's the pedophiles who are also psychopaths are the ones um you know who who you have to worry about um so i was going to ask if there's any correlation between our psychopathy and intelligence at all you mean um Oh, Do they tend to be more highly intelligent? I think with some conditions, uh, people tend to have to be more intelligent. I think with like bipolarism, but is there a link with intelligence and psychopathy? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I don't think so um, because 
one of the items on the checklist is need for stimulation proneness to boredom, mm-hmm. uh, which in, implies, you know, that you don't want to, you're certainly not going to be studious. You're not going to, you're not going to um, be interested in learning that much. And in fact, I remember Hare saying to me that uh, they they quite often seem on the surface to have like a kind of great depth of knowledge about many different things. But when you start to question them, it kind of all falls down. And again, it's like, it's, it's superficial. Their knowledge is superficial and not deeply held. Uh, it's used. It's like a sort of veneer of knowledge, mm-hmm. which is basically something that they use to, to further themselves. In the one of the course the the threads running through all your books and especially this one is uh you know meeting with different people that you know not only psychopaths and people with weird ideas and whatever else and i'm wondering what's the as a, as a writer and a journalist how, what's the line between befriending and interviewing a person and and sort of exploiting them for your book uh for right. example you, you talk about you know the pleasure of getting nutty quotes and wacky situations from your book uh, and your colorful interviews, and you know, you're, you're meeting these people who are genuinely colorful, weird, strange characters. But at the same yeah. time, you know, there must be sort of this weird gray area where you you, you want to encourage them and, and get their story and tell it sincerely. I mean, not not, not necessarily exploitation, but on the other hand, you also don't necessarily want to encourage the behavior that you're reporting on. So how do you how do you juggle that? Well, I have to say that the, the the older I get, the easier that gets for me because I'm I'm so much more aware of my own, you know, colourful eccentricities and irrationalities <laughs> and so on. And so when I'm with somebody and I I am trying to you know I am exploring with them some kind of strangeness, uh, I, I totally feel that we're in it together. You know, mm-hmm. the, sure. the the sort of madness of life we're, we're in it together. And it's fine, and, and I I really feel that. You know, I think probably when I was younger, it was much more. I was much more like kind of Doctor Livingstone, you know, sort of hacking my way through the jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was when I wasn't really. I was kind of less clever, I suppose. I was less kind of aware of, of, you know, what what guides all of us. I, I, which meant me, which made me, you know, I, I was I was younger and with it, I was probably a bit more patronising. Mm-hmm. But, but, but not anymore, and not for a long time. Nowadays, I feel, yeah, you know, as I say, I feel like we're in it together, and I'm very open with people. You know, you can tell when you listen to my radio documentaries or my TV documentaries. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't hold back. It's not like I ask one question but then write, you know, but right. then sort of way. You know, I'm very, very open with people in quite a sort of cheerful, you know, in sort of cheerful way, and. So people just sort of talk openly, and it's because I don't feel in any way patronising towards them nowadays. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I, I sort of feel, I feel like we're all on this sort of, you know, crazy irrational journey together, and, and exploring the irrationalities is a is a kind of pleasant thing for us to do together. Mm-hmm. I, and also, by the way, I, I, I like to think that that my readers feel the same way too. You know, that people don't tend to read my books from a from a position of um, of superiority, you know, I, I like to think readers are all in it together as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. I, I'm not. I don't want to suggest that I got the sense of you know exploitation or thing. Just that, just from from my own experience and as a journalist and doing other things, that you know, when you're interviewing people who you clearly disagree with, 
Um, and yet you have, you want, you respect them and you're sincerely trying to understand them and sympathize with them. There's this sort of weird line where, you know, you, you're, you're trying to not be deceptive. On the other hand, you, you don't want to go in there with a hard nosed skeptical attitude saying, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, and I, I totally, totally know what you mean. And, and you know what? I think the answer to that is the word skepticism because, because I am a skeptic. However, when I'm in those situations, I, very, unless I'm with somebody who's really horrible, really mean, um, and I can think of one or two people like that. I mean, Sylvia Brown is, is one. I, I was on a psychic cruise with her one time, and she did feel to me, you know, the things she was doing was so bad. I did feel like a kind of investigative journalism out to, to investigative journalist out to, out to expose her. But that's really, really rare. You know, most of the time, my sort of skeptical hat kind of comes off when I'm with people. It's, it's, it sort of regains itself when I'm back at home writing a bit. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure I get things sort of factually right and I don't go into a sort of postmodern, you know, arena. Um, but when I'm with people, I, I don't feel, you know, particularly skeptical. I, I, I sort of tend to immerse myself in, in, in their way of being, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and for me, that's, you know, that's the the best way of being. I mean, you know, I'm a great fan of the skeptical movement, but that's the one part of it that I've always, you know, that I'm slightly critical of. I, you know, it can sometimes be slightly dehumanizing of, of, of the, you know, the people who we don't agree with. Um, and sometimes that's completely valid and justified, but on other occasions I think it's not. Well, that, that's sort of the bigger issue in skepticism, I think, is... is um it, there's that um, activist, you know, trying to stop, you know, all medicine that doesn't work, trying to protect right. against scams. And at the same time, it, it, there has to be, um, hey, this is a really useful worldview. Why don't you try it? Right. And if you if you've got like the uh, the I don't know what to call it, the, the activists who want to change the world by stopping bad things, a complimentary uh uh, sort of group uh, that wants to say, hey, and this is a fun way to live. You know, it's a great thing to sort of be able to have this tool set to evaluate what's real and what's not. Um, absolutely. absolutely. So. But, and at the same, but and at the same time, um, you know, st- um, try and see it from their perspective. I mean, obviously, there's some things which you just can't, you know, you, scammers and, and frauds. Um, there are certain people out there who you, there's just no point in trying to see the world from their perspective. But then there's other people. You know, I was in Iowa the other week uh, talking with some people from a church group, and I didn't feel the need to say to them, you know, these sex addiction, gambling addiction, you know, support groups that you have in your church, you know, it, it, it's based on a false premise, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, I didn't, I didn't feel the need to say it to them. I sort of thought, okay, you know, if it, if it works for you and if people's lives are better, then that's okay. You know, and, and so, you know, I, so I guess I'm a little more humanistic about it than some people in the movement. Um, I well, uh, well, there is that whole, well, again, that's, that's the whole, um, there's people who are, let's say atheists who think that religion is bad and should be gotten mm-hmm. rid of. And there's people who, are atheists by definition, but don't like the word atheist because of all the connotation of uh, anti-religion, um, which they may be perfectly okay with. So, yeah. you know, way yeah. off topic for monsters, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that sort of that that kind of um, um, 
self-assessment by the skeptical movement. Um, it, it, I guess it's one of the reasons why I embrace uh, skepticism over uh, – and I, I think of myself as a, a positive humanist and a skeptic and don't spend much time working on the uh, atheism agnosticism side of things. Right. And yeah, a, a humanist and a skeptic together I think is a, is a very good combination. That's the right combination to um, well, of course, yeah. you and I think no. <laughs> so I actually had a question. <laughs> now that you're a little more removed from the book by time, do you still find yourself mentally testing people you encounter for psychopathy? Yeah, but I'm less, but I'm, but I'm more self-aware about it now, and I understand the pitfalls of it now. Um, at the same time, you know what? I think it's a kind of positive thing to have. Uh, it it does solve some mysteries. For instance, I can think of lots of occasions when I've interviewed people over the years where they just haven't answered my questions. It's like I wasn't in the room. And uh, that is a potential sign of psychopathy because I think interviews are kind of based on empathy. And if you have no empathy, you, you feel no need to please you know, the other person that you're talking to, and so there's no need to answer their questions. And quite recently, I was interviewing somebody who just completely ignored all my questions and went off for these, you know, 45-minute answers. And I thought to myself, God, you know, this guy um, is incredibly annoying. And and I sort of remembered what Robert Hare said about, about that. So I started asking him questions about his childhood. I said, you know, what kind of kid were you? Were you a, were you a bully? I'd say, yes, yes, I was. I was a terrible bully. I used to jump up from behind the tree and hit people with a, with a brick. And I said, and did you enjoy it? I said, how did you feel about it? He said, I felt good. And I said, and now looking back on it, because he was like 70, I said, how do you feel now looking back on it? And he said, um, yeah, I still feel good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so there's an example of um, you know, using my psychopath. I'm not going to do anything with, with that, but it was a, it was a good... It, you know, it was a solution to the mystery of why was that guy behaving in the way that he was. Well, final question time. We always like to ask our guests uh, what their favourite monster is. So, John, what's your favourite monster? Ooh. Um, I guess Thor doesn't count as a monster, does he? Sure. We had ninjas as monsters, so I you, think <laughs> are, you, are you frightened by Thor? <laughs> no, I, I admire Thor. Um, I only chose Thor because we, we sat down and watched the movie the other day, and I thought it was fantastic. So Thor is at the topmost of my mind. Um, but I guess Thor is a bad answer. Okay, who's well, no, you could do Thor if you want to. I did, did you not find Loki a bit repulsive? <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Loki was a, there was terrible. a big. There were some frost giants in that movie. It's the Hemsworth. It's the, all those abs. It, it just takes over your mind. And then, <laughs> and you know what? I've just decided who my favorite monster is. I've come up with a better monster. Um, my favorite monster is, is uh, Jeffrey Tambor. Um, I. <laughs> Um, because uh, Hank Kingsley is the best ever television <laughs> Fair enough. And also, I was listening to a Marin podcast the other day, and, um, oh, that guy from Scott Pilgrim was on. I've forgotten his name. Um, uh, Michael Sarah. Mm-hmm. Michael Sarah was on. Yeah. And he told a story about how when he was in Arrested Development, he was there with his mother on the first day's shooting. And... Jeffrey Tambor walked past and Michael Sarah said, oh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, uh, come and meet my mother. And Jeffrey Tambor said, I don't want to meet your f***ing mother. 
<laughs> and I kind of carried on walking, and then turned around and came back and gave her a kiss. So he was so he was kidding with her, but I just thought that is a, that is one great monster. <laughs> so uh, Jeffrey Tambor is my favorite monster. Plus, of course, he was in Max Headroom, so he gets extra points. I didn't even know he was in Max Headroom. He was. Oh wow, that's, that's very cool. Ben, ben would know. <laughs> thank you so much for spending an hour with us we appreciate it thank you my pleasure thank Thanks. you it's, 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 I'm, I'm very happy to have done it okay cool it was good talking with you guys thanks you, John. thanks Monster Talk thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk I'm Blake Smith and in this episode together with Karen Stolzno and Ben Radford we've been talking to author John Ronson about his book The Psychopath Test a link to Ronson's book is in the show notes Thanks again to everyone who's been helping out with our transcript project. If you'd like to contribute to that work, a link to the PayPal button as well as contact information for your hosts in all of their social media guises is in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are that of the host and the guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Hang on one second because the, the plumbers are at my door. Um, just hang on a sec. He means he's MI5 controllers. With <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.